We are super excited. Uh, we have a very special guest with us today, and that is Darius Arya, who is an archaeologist, a professor, I presume, of Roman archaeology. Correct me if I'm oh, wrong yeah. there. And yeah. a documentary host as well um, so you may have seen his work um, in the US in the UK or in Italy um, things on the Discovery Channel the History Channel, National Geographic PBS BBC4 or Rai Cinque and he is also a director of a number of archaeological digs he has worked in the Roman Forum and at Ostia Antica which is the major port for ancient Rome. He's also the executive director of the American Institute for Roman Culture, which is a nonprofit organization that promotes Rome's cultural heritage through a variety of outreach work. So Dr. Rad and I are super excited to be able to talk to Darius today about the archeology span around Rome. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. No. It's, it's such a pleasure. And also the, the podcast and uh, all the videos that we're producing on Ancient Rome Live, that's just a lot of good content where we're getting a lot of that access as well to sites and museums, especially right now when everything's still closed. Uh, we're really happy to be able to share a lot of those collections and you know lesser known aspects of, uh, of Rome and Rome throughout Italy and the rest of the empire, really, for that matter. As a teacher, we thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, what a pleasure. So thank you so much um, for being willing to sit down with us and to jump in um, to sort of just get a sense of where we are when we're thinking about archaeology. What do we really mean um, when we're talking about archaeological evidence? Oh, there's so much. Um, you know, basically, we, we have a good starting point uh, when we're getting involved with uh, ancient Rome, looking at all the written sources. So we have the philological side, we have all these wonderful texts and then inscriptions, but then we can dig down literally into archaeological sites and we can look at the material evidence that's unearthed in, in all these locations that are then mentioned uh, in the texts. And we can sometimes find correspondence and sometimes we find new information, sometimes we find things that disagree with, what, with what's written down, which is kind of like the case in point today. And that's what makes it all really exciting is that the field of archaeology is multidisciplinary and that's always been the case and you have at this point people that specialize in very focused areas maybe it's coinage maybe it's pottery maybe it's a particular kind of pottery but it's all together that kind of conversation that's coming from various um, people's backgrounds and areas of specialty tying it all together to get that fuller three-dimensional picture of a particular moment in time or a particular person or a particular city. So we have this like fantastic opportunity, it sounds like, with archaeological evidence to really um, help us understand the ancient world in a much fuller sense. Are there particular aspects of the ancient past that archaeology can really tap into helping us understand better? Well, nowadays, especially, we, we, we can be much more sophisticated so we can utilize various technologies so there's more analysis of, let's say, the flora and the fauna. Or, you know, there's one great example where they analyzed all the material. It ended up being human waste, tons of it, in one of the drains underneath Herculaneum. So then you're sifting through material that maybe, you know, 100 years ago in archaeology, you weren't you know, aware of or able to get that kind of information. 
today we can't. You know, today we're looking at the bones of people and we'll be able to say how they were uh, nourished, you know, what kind of nutrients they got, you know, what kind of, ultimately we can talk about their lifestyle, what talk quality of life. So just there's a whole bunch of, of information now that we can glean from what we're unearthing, whereas before it was, you know, still a lot more, you know, guesswork. I think that's so important for us because Dr. G and I have been traipsing our way through the Roman monarchy and the very early Republic. And whilst there are some fantastic literary sources, which is what we tend to focus on in our account, if you read only those, you would think Rome was this massive superpower (laughs) in Italy and that they were just conquering everyone. They were just ruling the school. But when you turn and look at the archaeology from that period, it sometimes tells a bit of a different story. Um, So I thought we might kick off by talking about one of Rome's most formidable opponents, which is the Etruscans, who are located to the north of Rome. We, we come across these guys a lot. I mean, what was going on in that late monarchy period? Who knows? But we're very interested to hear what you have to say about what the archaeological record can reveal about uh, the city of Vey. Yeah, Vey's amazing because you go out there today and there's a nice, a natural plateau. It was a, it was a great place to have a city. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it's defensible. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of great... Uh, natural perks and it's defensible. In fact, you know, the, the story goes that the Romans took 10 years of uh, besieging it before it finally fell. Um, so it's, um, and it's ultimately, you know, again, in the stories that uh, after Rome had been sacked, they actually considered they as a new capital because, you know, many people's assessment at the time was it's more defensible. You know, it's it's a better place to be and uh, and we should just move the population up there. So, uh, you know, you, and, and then you finally can look at the topography and you can kind of see what they're saying. You can look at the lay of the land and the river by it and so on and, and get a sense of, yes, this would be, uh, you know, a great location. Uh, didn't have to deal with the flooding that Rome certainly had to deal with and continue to deal with all throughout its history. So, um, you know, we have the the geography and the natural lay of the land that we can refer to. And then even with the archaeological exploration of the site, some tunnels have been found, which some archaeologists believe are the very tunnels that the uh, Romans ultimately dig to get access to the water systems of the veins to finally go and sack it. Uh, so you do have some tie-ins with the, you know, the archaeological record. And, uh, and then ultimately we have sanctuaries. We're looking at some amazing examples of late 6th century sanctuaries. We're getting a sense of what their artistic achievements are, uh, very parallel to what the Romans were doing. But, you know, again, in the sources, we're told that Volca, who's making some of the great statues for the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, was from they. So, you know, you're getting all kinds of connections. And when you look at the map, Rome to they, I mean, it's just a little suburb of Rome today. I mean, it's a bike ride away from Rome. Uh, you know, a jaunt of, I don't know, you know, 20 kilometers maximum. But I mean, really, uh, it's, it's, it's close. And it's the southernmost major Etruscan city. So that culture was always pushing in and having an, an interaction with the Romans. So we have all those kinds of, of different ways that we can look at it. We can look at the archaeological record as well and see how much of Etruria was in early Rome in the sites like Santa Mabono, 
uh, particularly by the, um, the, the port of, of Rome along the Tiber River. So yeah, we've got a lot of archaeology that we can that we can reflect upon and see that they really wasn't so different from the contemporary city of Rome. And for the Etruscans, archaeology has become super important for understanding their culture, hasn't it? Because we have so little in terms of literary evidence from their culture, but they were so influential on Rome. Yeah, we know it because of the impact that they had on religious practices uh, for the Romans, their kind of outlook on the afterlife. Uh, we can look at the Fasces, we can look at, uh, you know, the different, you know, the Herispices, uh, looking at the, the liver and the entrails of the uh, sacrificial victims. So, so many things the Romans did attribute to, um, to the Etruscans, uh, attributed to the Vaeans, and then, you know, ultimately what happens to a city like Vae and the other Etruscan cities? They just kind of, you know, fade away. I mean, the, the land around Vae was fertile land, so it just becomes agar publicus, you know, just like every other place that was conquered by the Romans. And then it's not really developed into a new city or anything like that. It's ultimately just going to fade away. So we, you know, when we go and look at that city, we're looking at the older wall circuit. We're looking at the remains of the sanctuaries. And certainly there's a lot more to unearth within that big archaeological park that Vey is today. But, um, yeah, we're kind of, you know, have to ask a lot of questions because there haven't been the major investigations that still, you know, could take place archaeologically to shed a little light on it. So we do depend so much upon the, uh, the oral tradition and then it's written down and it's, you know, quasi-mythic when we're looking at a lot of redundancies, a lot of overlaps. And like you're saying, it looks like, what is this, a big Trojan War every time here? What's going on here? So you kind of wonder just how big <laughs> those wars, rather skirmishes were against these villages, not, you know, mega cities. Yes, my ears did prick up when you said a 10-year siege. And I was like, wait a minute, I've heard about one of these before. <laughs> You're telling me, Bay, is that impressive? And there seems to be a real sense in which, even though our written source material is positioning Rome's relationship with these peoples as if they're really other, there's a sense in which we've got so much interconnection. And we can see yeah. that coming through, as you say, with the way that the Etruscans really bring a lot of um, ritual practices that the Romans wholeheartedly adopt and and do tend to venerate when they are going through the process of thinking about their relationship with the gods. So we can't really underestimate that relationship, even though we're drawing upon what seems to be like a, a challenging archaeological record in that area. Well, you've, you know, uh, today we're going to be talking about a lot of different Italic peoples, and a lot of people will say, who are the Volscians? Who are the Ernitians? Who are the Eichmans? Who are these people? And we really don't know that much. But we do know more about the Etruscans. We do know they had more of an impact, more of a close relationship. I mean, my gosh, think about the, uh, the kings of Rome, like the Tarquins that were from Etruria. So there's so much of an impact and influence uh, culturally, politically, religiously, uh, on the Romans. So we can spend more time talking about them. We can spend more time looking at that culture and seeing it's how it seeped its way and stayed in uh, with, the, uh, with the Romans. But we really can't say by and large the same things about the other people, which were, let's say, I mean, some of them, like the Volscians, they have a pretty substantial city like, like Antium, this, this very important port city, but not on the level that, you know, by the time we're looking at it archaeologically, you know, we're looking at 
Nero's villa. <laughs> you know, we're not really looking at. It's really hard to go back, and then we're seeing like some ori- you know original language inscription. I mean, just so little, so much less than what we get from the from the Etruscans. So I think we're better off spending a lot more time <laughs> looking at the looking at the Etruscans in the Romans' backyard. Yeah, well, fair enough, because uh, so if we're thinking about Antium, just to locate that geographically, we're talking, we're switching from the Etruscans are sitting to the north of Rome and the Volsci sitting towards the south and the west and down to that coastline where Antium is. And yet when we're reading Livy and we're reading Dionysius of Halicarnassus, these sort of great sort of historiographical traditions, they really build up the Volscians as being this quite substantial enemy. And yet it seems that the archaeological record is patchy at best and the layers that we've got date from much later periods, which makes it very hard for us to be sure about what's going on in that much earlier period. And they're so thick, they're so dense, the, the records of all the fighting that's taking place uh, in the, uh, particularly in the 4th century, and just goes on and on and on like these sagas, but actually then a lot of the scholarship is saying, I think there are a lot of redundancies, it seems that this, you know, gets, you know, almost like cut and pasted again and again and again, it's very similar and so on and so forth. But the main thing is, I mean, there are a number of <clears throat> really good, um, interesting cities, culturally you know, significant. Antium was a great port city. And the culmination of it all, you know, that I always think about is finally there's a land battle, but there's also the sea battle in 338. So you're coming all the way down to 338, and that's where you're kind of cleaning up for the Romans. And, they're, and the reason why they're really active there, the reason why I guess there are a lot of skirmishes over time, is because beyond it is the Pomptine Marshes where it's always malarial all throughout antiquity. But this sweet spot area, a little above it, Ancio, well, it's the Pomptine Plains. So it's rich and fertile, and it's the object of desire, you know, of the Romans, plus having a decent port. They're never going to, I mean, Austria's never a great port until the imperial period, so they're always looking further south to the better ports. Antium was the first great one, uh, a, a, a par- part of a series. In, in another city, Pometia, Pometia, Suecia, Pometia, which is basically, I mean, today it's kind of like, you don't want to live in Pometia, I'll tell you. But you're, you're going to drive down <laughs> the, uh, the uh, Pontina um, Highway uh, to get to the good beaches of, you know, further south, Terracina and, and so on, um, and Cerceo and whatnot. But uh, you know, Pometia was that kind of substantial city of its time right there before you get to the Pomptine Marshes. So these are, these are places that you wanted to control. I mean, the Romans were there for that, for strategic uh, purposes. And it just seems that these people, we call them Oscan, Umbrian, rather than Latin, you know, they're already culturally distinct and the language is distinct. They have their own identity. And they didn't like those Northerners. You know, they didn't like those Latins. They didn't like the Romans. And so that's that push and pull and back and forth that's ultimately... And it's going to go one way or the other. And sometimes the, the, the Volscians are going to be, you know, allying themselves with various enemies of the Romans, like, like Tusculum. Yeah, we've definitely got a sense of that. We've only just covered in our narrative episodes the initial conquering of Antium. Okay. And there's already a lot of pushback that's resulted in some beheading and flogging and that kind of thing. So it's good for our listeners to know that there's about 100 years or so of that to look forward to. Okay, good. So, so I mean, I'm thinking also like just in that really, you know, kind of critical moment between the end of the Vaeans, the you know, conquest of Vae, 
in, in 396. Then you get that famous sack of Rome. And then subsequently, uh, you know, you have all these people ganging up together. It's like the ultimate nightmare of the Romans. So already the Gauls are bad enough because they sacked the city. But then it's the Etruscans, the Volscans, the Iqui, you know, it's like, oh, and we'll talk about them. But it's like, who are these people that are all ganging up? So they all consider, even though we look on a map and say, well, they're all pretty much, you know, like, you know, 10 kilometers from each other. But they're separated by, by valleys and mountains of the Apennines. It really did cut apart and distinguish people. Today you're zipping through on the highways or there are the tunnel systems that are a great part of the highways of Rome or taking the train. And you don't really get a sense of how much, how difficult it would have been to go up and down these valleys um, you know, these short distances, and so people could feel culturally distinct and have their own deities and their sanctuaries and so forth. Yeah, we are noticing already that there seem to be a few locations that are the favorite hotspots for battles. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably because exactly what you're saying, they're probably kind of equidistant and easy enough to reach. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I, I, I really, the reason I'm, I'm all into Ancio, also goes Antium for the listeners, if you think about you know the allies that are coming to you know conquer liberate Rome you know conquer Italy from the Germans who had taken over, then that's that's where their beachhead is. It's like a little Normandy, you know, and it was tough. It was tough going. So not only do you have the history side, we're talking about the Volscians who started it, and then we're talking about maybe you know Nero's villa and Caligula's born there and all that sort of stuff. Then we go forward in time, and it's the site of another important battle. Then once you got up on the coast there, it's like a straight shot uh, into Rome. Um, and, uh, and then down the street, let's say further south, the coast will suddenly come to a little point. And that's the juncture along the coast where you can quite clearly see all the way down to Circeo and all the way back up, back up to uh, uh, Antium. And that's that point of where that battle took place. And that's that place where you can really, really, you know, it's a again, a, an important uh, battle site. And that's where that Battle of 338 took place. So you could really see who's coming down south and up in the north. So yeah, the topography is, is essential in all this sort of stuff. So maybe we can't so, say so much about the archeology span everywhere, but we've got the stories and we've got the locations and those locations have not changed. And those locations are super important from a strategic perspective as well. Cause like we've got um, the Volskii and this leads us really nicely into thinking about the Tusculans, but also the Aquians who are all sitting around in that uh, Castelli Romani region, which is to the sort of Southwest of Rome. And if you're there and you're in those, ma those hills, they're not really mountains. I wouldn't say they're, nah. uh, you know, they're, I mean, for us as Australians, meters, they, they count yeah. as hills, but, uh, yeah. as mountains maybe, but for Romans, they're pretty, but they provide a really fantastic view when you're there, you can see straight to Rome and beyond. And you've got this vast view of the, of the plains. It's a highly strategic place to be and a great place to be able to start being defensive once you see an army heading your way. Yeah, I mean, when you're all the way up in the Castelli, like if you think over by um, Albano and Castel Gandolfo, where the Pope has his you know, summer residence, you know, on one side of it, you're, you can look down and see the coastline just beautifully. So, I mean, you just think of the huge area that you can cover uh, visually. Uh, in Frascati, you know, you're up there and this is near Tusculum and you're looking down uh, the plain all the way uh, to Rome. And so that is going to be, uh, again, just a clear, distinct view 
of you know your big enemy, your principal enemy, and it is it is incredible the just the, the views that you get. Also, you, it's much cooler. So what happens ultimately is not so much a Tusculum anymore, and it's more about Cicero has his villa there because it's air conditioned, you know, because it's up six hundred meters. So they get snow all the time <laughs> in the winter. Rome rarely gets snow, but you want to think about it. Really, was ultimately just the pl- one of the many pleasant places to be when Rome got unbearably hot and uh, inevitably malarial. So you go to the the high ground. And so it's in Rome's interest, it sounds like, from just describing those sort of geographic conditions, for them to have control of that area. So they've got places to go and places to place people and to have farming and things like that. Because I imagine that the malarial situation in Rome, even though it's one that we don't tend to talk about too much, it's like it's happening season after season for them. Oh, yeah. And they never got rid of it. Yeah, and it, it's a, it sort of has a devastating impact on everything about the layout of the city as well because they're always thinking about the flooding of the Tiber and there's suggestions, and perhaps you can speak to this as well, that the mm-hmm. Forum itself is kind of built up out of the marsh um, yeah. as, a, as a structure. Yeah, and, I mean, and also that, even that's going to periodically flood. So think about the great famous Cloaca Maxima just literally backing up and then up comes the water. Uh, and, and, and it's like a disaster. Sometimes you think, why are they still living there? But, I mean, you know, part of the thing is, well, they didn't move to Vey. That's why. They had to deal with it. But there are many benefits because, obviously, the, the, the Tiber River is a direct connection to the, um, to the Mediterranean. Then being inland, of course, it was also a way, initially, you know, being you're protected from, uh, from, from attacks directly. And then you, you know, set up your castrum, your fortification there that becomes Ostia. So you know they did they did a, had a good idea overall, and you know all things considered, the weather was pretty mild. I mean, still today, living in Rome for I don't know how long I lived there twenty two, twenty three years or whatever, it just enjoys incredibly, uh, you know, I say gentle climbs. But I mean, yeah, we have you know a wet season, a dry season, and so forth. But nine times out of ten, everywhere around us, they have terrible weather. Oh, Rome has another sunny day. It's kind of like Denver, Colorado or something. We have so many days of sunshine, it's, it's ridiculous. There's always the, the beautiful sunlight, you know, peeking out. So I think it's got just some magic about it. Uh, and it's not so humid as well, um, unlike maybe like a Florence or something like that. So we're, 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 we're doing okay. I think we're still, still, still magical. It hasn't been ruined. But you, di- you live with the realities of the Tiber River, you know, coming in and, and, and going out, as many societies have have dealt with uh, periodic flooding. And, um, you know, kind of life went on, as strange as that might sound. Yeah, and I think this is important for us to remember as well, because we we think of the environment around us as being very much humanly controlled. And even the Tiber today, it has those massive walls that really, I mean, to breach those walls would be quite substantial, and it's possible, but far less likely than what you would expect with an annual flooding if it's like down at at the ground level without that sort of protection. And I think this feeds in nicely to thinking about, like, do we know much about how um, the people around Rome are coping with their own environments? Is there anything that we can say about the way that it is in, say, the Castelli Romani region? What might be some of the advantages for the Aquians? And do we have any evidence to suggest that they were making good use of any of the geographic advantages they might have had? Uh, that's a good point. I think, well, one of the main things is, you know, they're, they're, I mean, if you do ever go to Tusculum in particular, 
uh, we're talking about Castelli Romani. I mean, it's they're really high up. I mean, sure you can just drive up, you know, from Rome thirty minutes or whatever. But I mean, it is it is literally a hike to get up there. It's almost seven hundred meters up. Um, so they are in a strategic position. They're high enough on the ridge so they can see, you know, on all sides around them. That's really why they're that high up. Uh, they're enjoying then, you know, decent climate and uh and then you know they've got the whole area around them terraced for farmland and so forth so it's kind of rough going but i guess a lot of these folk that we're talking about they're known for being pretty hardy i mean then you're going to go all the way down later on to the samnites but already these people here they're you know in charge of pretty you know at times rough terrain um and and uh i just think that uh they're used to that kind of i don't know what's a parallel would you say like the scottish or something like that I mean, these people they have like kind of tough <laughs> they're just tough people and, and and the romans you know they were in a little different situation they're latins but then they're living in a floodplain with this anomaly of these hills which are just big dumps of ash from the volcanoes from the castelli romani so Roman in and of itself is a weird anomaly. And then, of course, it's founded by the closest, air, easiest way to ford the river by the Tiber Island. So it has its own weird kind of ecosystem. It shouldn't be there. It's kind of a mistake. Everyone else was like the Vans were on a, a raised plateau of tuff. And, you know, and the Latins are up there in the mountains along volcanic craters that are extinct. So everyone else was really situated in a much more, you know, easily fortified area, just made a little more sense. And then geographically, like all the Latins, you know, they're, they're unified by a couple of shared sanctuaries, like the Sanctuary of Diana and Nemi, and they're linked with uh, language and, and tradition and geographical proximity, because there's re really nothing blocking you to go from Rome up to the Castelli, for example. Then these other guys, you know, it's a little bit different, but they're they're not that far away, but there are those geographical situations which then seem to isolate them further. And they develop their own trends and traditions and even language, um, you know, differently. So I think that that's, that's going to be a big part. And then, you know, the, the, I like the, the Volscians. We're talking about them a lot. I mean, we know a little bit more about them, but also they're pretty interesting because they're getting up into the, you know, the high country in some places. But then they're down there on the plains and then they're along the coast. So, just you know, they have a lot more going on for them, I think, you know, and that could they get more sizable, they get more wealth, they're doing more trading. It's so, it's so interesting what you just said then, because uh, it just made me think about one of the recent stories we've covered is the seeming invasion of Rome and the Tusculans come to their aid famously. Mm -hmm. and. You know, Dr. G and I were joking about that because we were talking about how the Tusculans, oh, they just see the invading party going by <laughs> and they think we must go and rescue the Romans. But it just shows how important it is to look at the literary record and the archaeological record because that makes perfect sense if you've got the Tusculans up high with like a great view around them, you know, really able to see what's happening in that surrounding area. Otherwise, it seems a bit weird that they'd just be like, hey, where are those guys yeah, going? Exactly. Yeah, no, no, I think it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it works well when you start to really understand the lay of the land and who would have had that kind of, plus you mean imagine their whole kind of system of, uh, of scouts and so forth and, and different points along the hills with, you know, you can see, you know, all the way over to the sea. I mean, you could really see a lot of, of troop movements at that point, it becomes, you know, pretty obvious. And it looks like with a lot of these stories as well, it's just there's a lot of, I was say Game of Thrones here, but there's a lot of back and forth and alliances are shifting and changing. And it's all that jockeying for position because you don't, re I mean, it's not clear to anyone from the beginning, especially with the beginning of the Latin League, that Rome will dominate like it did. Could have been anybody, you know, but it ends up being Rome. 
and then they're going to try to steamroll over the other people and then those people time and time again form their own alliances like i don't really like you i fought against you two seasons ago but now i'm going to make an alliance with you because we got to stop these guys because otherwise they're going to be in our backyard so that's also interesting as well just to look at the the literary record or that kind of back and forth yeah, at the moment, it's all about the Tuscalans and the Hunnians for the Romans, for us. <laughs> they're, they're their favourites at the moment. Um, but speaking of an, another enemy that we haven't actually mentioned much yet, but people actually might have heard of because they come up in some of the famous sort of semi-mythological moments in Roman mm. history, the Sabines. Oh, I love the Sabines. So the Sabines, yeah, the Sabines are based more uh, to the east of Rome and the north of the river Anio. And there are speculations in some of our ancient sources that the Sabines are, in fact, potentially Greek in some way. Uh, what can the archaeological record tell us about them? Yeah, I think on that one there, in terms of, uh, you know, are they Spartans or are they Umbrians or who are these people? I mean, they kind of seem almost, I mean, steeped in their own kind of mysterious uh, beginnings, the way we're talking about the Etruscans, like, we'd like to know more about the Sabines. So we have Sabine country and today, you know, there are some of these key towns and famous Romans that are from these locations. But the, to go back really to the archaeological record, we're not really seeing anything so distinct as Stabine, except for the fact that it, it does kind of uh, maintain its, its identity in that region. Like today, we still call it Sabine country, you know, and you're going out to the country there to get your olive oil or to get your wine or something like that. So it has, it's still steeped in that kind of tradition like Horace going out to a Sabine farm kind of thing. But uh, it really remains just uh, intimately associated with the beginning of Rome, with Titus Tatius as, as this king whose people then merge with the Romans. But we're taking it super local in that storyline because we're talking about the Sabines living on the Quirinal Hill with their god Quirinus, you know? So it's really tightly associated. So I guess if we look at those stories and then we're looking at the archaeological evidence, it just seems that for the Romans and their oral tradition, they're really, you know, you know, Rome was always about merging with other people. But right there in the beginning, they're really emphatic about how close they are to the Sabines and how they're one of the earliest populations uh, to merge with them. So, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of like the most we can do. And, and then to see that that tradition continues on. So you have the Claudians, or you have Vero, or you have Vespasian, I mean, everyone, this lineage that then people, you know, derive from. And just from, you know, topographically, where their families are from. So it's not even that other lineage of, well, uh, the, the Julii are descended from uh, Aeneas, you know. This is just really, those people are so, you know, closely associated, so quasi-Roman, primordial Roman, or essential Roman, uh, because they always consider themselves mixed peoples, and that's that aura, I think, that, that is maintained. I was going to say, definitely our listeners might recall that we've had Roman kings potentially come from Sabine area, and certainly, most recently, we're just heading into the 440s BCE, and we've been talking a lot about the Claudian yeah. family. And there's, there's been some disputes going on between the Claudians because of the behavior of Appius mm -hmm. Claudius over the whole Decemvirate. And we've even had one of his uncles, Gaius Claudius, say, you know what, I'm so disgusted with you, I'm going back to live with the Sabines. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nice. I mean, listen, it's a really nice part of the country. I mean, I feel like when I go out there, I've got some friends that, that live out there or whatever, and it's always like, come and get your olive oil. 
you know, and you're just, you feel like you're driving back in time. I mean, because there's Rieti or whatever, but there aren't that many big cities in that area. So you're just sort of hopping around. And then what's really, you know, ultimately displaced the Roman ruins and whatnot are going to be these isolated monasteries, you know, and churches. And that just pick up on that. And it's, it just has a great, I think the, the territory still has a great feel to it. It's, it's very, uh, it's just dominated by the the natural landscape, the trees, the uh, and then the, the the orchards, the olive groves. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a great place, and I feel like maybe a little connectivity to that those past peoples out there. I think it must be tricky from um, a Roman ancient Roman perspective when we're thinking about the Sabines to a certain degree, because it's pretty clear from the stories that they tell that they share that really intimate relationship, and. We've got um, also the suggestion that um, the King Numa is of Sabine origin as well. So a lot of mm-hmm. that foundation story um, coming through in addition to Titus Tatius. And yet, when we think about the Sabines um, from a linguistic perspective, they're sort of positioned to us as an Oscan Umbrian speaking group, um, which is sort of sets them apart a little bit from the Romans yeah. in a proper sense. So there is some sort of disconnect when we start looking at some of the other aspects of what's going on with these two peoples. Yeah, I kind of wonder if it's like, you know, as distinct from all the other Latin peoples that the Romans are dealing with, where they would have an immediate uh, affinity, you wonder if that's somewhere, I mean, I don't see it in the archaeological record per se, but according to their stories at least, that's that one group that's not like them that they early on are assimilating with. Just Something about them in the get-go, some sort of, you know, some sort of relationship, some sort of uh, detente, or uh, what they're saying is a, you know, a merger that that's there. Because all these stories and the rape of the Sabine women, Titus Tatius, Numa, and Anxious Marcius. I mean, everyone's they're all supposed to be, you know, Sabine. And then we have so many families, so many of the great Roman families. They're from that area as well. So it just seems like, you know, there's there's just something going on there that's really really particular. Well, I think it's so interesting when you think about the Romans, because one of the things that's always interested me in the way that they tell their own story is that unlike so many other ancient mm-hmm. people, their, their origin story, according to them, is all about people coming from lots of different oh, yeah. places and coming together and, and merging together. So it kind of makes sense, I suppose, <laughs> that, they, that they do incorporate these people that seem distinct in some ways but have certain similarities in others. It, it's kind of part of what makes them so different to other places in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, we can look at the Romans and we can talk about, you know, how many times they committed genocide and how they enslaved people and so on and so forth. But we look at that bare-bone kind of schematic of who they saw themselves as. And you're starting with Romulus and his his asylum. And you're talking about, you know, rape of the Sabine women, just finding people, merging with people. It's It's something really extraordinary when you look at other peoples as you're saying it's well this is a colony you know they go over to sicily or they go over to southern italy and so on and so forth and they're not really merging with the local lucanians i mean they're really just keeping amongst themselves and and growing their city like that Uh, and then you look at the greek world again and it's pretty much i'm so distinguished from you and i'm totally better than you and i don't want everything to do with you so it's just a different kind of mindset (laughs) and it's a great mindset and then i think it's fun to think about where we are today and we have so many mixed cultures that are out there. And that's where, you know, like in America, we're all pretty much children of immigrants and whatnot. And it's just, 
around the world, and it's just really kind of speaks to modern society, not living in isolation, and that's, you think that the Romans had a good idea, because uh, we're living it ourselves. Yeah, there's this real exchange of influences that is coming through between all of these groups, and, and Rome itself is like geographically surrounded by peoples, and this is something that the archaeological record really emphasizes, I think, yeah. and they're drawing in influences wherever they find them, and then they're also pushing back in terms of thinking about their own sense of identity as well. Yeah, they're never in a bubble, and that's what we want to always keep in mind, that they're never in a bubble, and that here is this incredibly almost oppressive society, successful, richer society of the Etruscans with their you know, league of cities and so forth, dealing with all the Greeks and so on, and, and they're literally, I mean, they is just in their backyard, so they're not unaware, they're, they're aware, they're trading with, they're interacting with, so it's multicultural from the get-go. And they're being exposed to all these other ideas from the get-go. And that, again, just makes, makes for a dynamic story. So I wonder, um, as a sort of a kind of a wrapping up kind of question, highly speculative, but where do you think the Romans might have really come from? Well, the Roman story is that they're coming from the Castelli, you know, and uh, due to, uh, you know, a prophecy then the you know the grandsons are supposed to kill the grandfather and so they're they're exposed i mean they could have left them on the top of the hillside by tusculum but instead they you know put them in a basket and floated them down the river um so you know that sort of stuff who knows but you know someone's got to come from somewhere so as opposed to some of the greek historian traditions of or they're greeks um it's probably make more sense that you're just you know other latin peoples that are leaving off from one city like where all the latins were in the castelli romani and going down over here and saying you know what this is actually a great place i mean look we know people are already living in rome like in the 10th century so i mean people are all around there's a little village and so forth but it gets more organized and it gets more organized around controlling that traffic just south of the tiber river and that's a business, and that's something worth fighting for and, and, and fortifying your hilltops and so on. And, you know, all this new study done in the archaeological site known as Santa Mabono, which you look at it, it's a big mess, but it goes back to the 7th century. And it's really, that's as much where Rome started as the Roman form right behind it. So it's like the port, you know, ports are so important. And even though Rome's not on the sea, that's their harbor. That's their port right there. And that's where they exchanged and, and got ideas and... And, you know, kind of grew up and created their own identity out of that. And they had their own stories, right? They had the she-wolf, you know, they had, uh, you know, this thing, you know, woodpecker that comes and feeds them, whatever. I mean, you know, the ficus ruminalis, all, this, all these interesting things. Uh, they do it in their own way. But uh, tied to their geography and tied to traditions that you can see from the get-go, tied to the Sabines with uh, Titus Tatius, tied with the uh, Etruscans, like the, the Tarquin kings, uh, you know, tied ultimately with that those Latin peoples because that's their inherent culture, that's the language that they spoke. So we're, we're you know covering a lot of people right there in the beginning of Rome's story, according to the Romans. Who's to say that's not uh, that's not all true? I'm really curious because living in Australia, as Dr. G and I do, even though there's an extensive archaeological record that goes back potentially 100,000 years in Australia, it's a very different kind of uh, settlement that we've mm -hmm. had here for the bulk of that time. And so 
archaeology in Australia is just very different. What is it like being an archaeologist that works in these kinds of areas where you have to deal with the fact that there's been um, a lot of settlement and build up over the course of time. And so, you know, digging back to those earlier layers can be difficult because you've either got people still living there or you've just had so many layers of settlement and building on that one site. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm usually here in Rome, it's just uh, everything is extremely complex. I mean, it's just the, the level of complexity is, is out of this world. I mean, nine times out of 10 years, some other place, well, that place is, it's no longer occupied, you know, it's abandoned and so forth. And therefore, that area is encapsulated with much less stratigraphy, you know, fewer layers, less complexities. But because Rome, like you're saying, has been occupied for so long, it's never abandoned and so forth. And we're getting into the Middle Ages, we're getting into the uh, Renaissance and so forth. It just ends up making it infinitely much more uh, difficult to understand and interpret. And that's obviously part of the fun as well. And we have some sites which are incredibly messy and complicated even just to understand as a visitor. So, you know, that's part of the, the difficulty uh, from being in a place that's occupied for thousands and thousands of years and there's substantial building on those locations. So, yeah, that's, that's just going to be part of the fun. Absolutely. And given that we are at the moment in the early Republic, I was wondering if we could ask you a little bit more about Rome in the early Republic and the archaeological record of what you've seen as what you know is going on in that time period. Yeah, I mean, we can. I mean, the fun thing is that there are a handful of really interesting sites for, you know, the early Republic. I mean, definitely we have to go into the Roman Forum. I mean, so sure, at face value, it's these big imperial monuments, but there are layers and pockets that have been able to been, you know, explored that take us back into the Republic, like the area of the, of the Comitium, for example. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really fortunate that, uh, you know, we can go to a, a few particular areas. Uh, Santa Mabono uh, ex- area that I was talking about, it's the temple, it's a sanctuary with the temple of uh, Fortuna Mata Martuta. And again, uh, subject of a recent study, reevaluation of everything that was unearthed in the, um, mostly in the fascist era. So we're getting a much clearer picture of a sanctuary that went back to the seventh century, which means that they had to, you know, to pump out the water to get back to the archaic temples and so on. But uh, it's just fascinating that we have windows into those periods. And there's just a lot of intense building. And there are signs of, you know, big fires. There are signs of, you know, damage from flooding. And then there's a lot of artificial raising up time and time again, because you're dealing with the perpetual flooding of the Tiber River. So um, I just think that, uh, you know, we see that these people were unstoppable in their efforts to continually either maintain or further build up some particular uh, area or monument or sanctuary. And you saw that success and how those areas are further getting developed and, um, and uh, you know, further decorated with uh, trophies of war and and so on. So I think, uh, yeah, we have we have some good opportunities to look, thinking of, of other places. But uh, you know, a real, the real standouts are you know Santa Mabono and um, the Roman Forum. A couple of areas maybe not so uh, frequented or accessible to the public. There's a there's a recent well, like sixth fifth century uh, temple that's uh, on the backside of the of the Quirinal that's not accessible to the public yet. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Well, obviously you can go, uh, you have some uh, monuments on the Palatine Hills. That's part of the Parco Colosseo. So Forum, Colosseum, Palatine Hill. Palatine Hill uh, lets us have some windows into uh, the Republican era. 
So there's this one section of uh, two Republican temples of victory and the Magda, uh, Magda Mater uh, temples, which just are a slice of Republican life. But it's, you know, it's the end of the Hannibalic War and, and, and going a little later in the second century. But there, there's like this window into Republican Rome that's preserved and everywhere around is built up. The House of Augustus, the, the Temple of Apollo, the Domus Tibidiana and so forth. So there are these little windows that allow us into, uh, into Republican Rome. Also, um, Largo Argentina, you know, where you have four Republican temples, one of which, you know, is Feronia. So that's supposed to be a Sabine deity. Uh, so their gods are coming in. Uh, they, you know, we, we bring Juno uh, of, of they into uh, into Rome, and they created a, um, you know kind of an act called evocatio, where they literally would call out the goddess, come to Rome, and they bring the cult <laughs> statue in. So I, with religion, it's not just war, but with religion, we get some great insights into how the Romans are dealing with other people and how they're trying to make other people's identities, you know, part of their own. So that's another fascinating aspect of Rome is that through the Republic, it's getting more and more and more gods and goddesses coming in and being part of their identity, uh, of their city. That's, you know, quite fascinating. They are great collectors. Yeah. <laughs> so much to, to think about. And it's like the more you think about it and the more you uh, look at the evidence, it's just it raises more questions and more stories emerge. And it's like, and I think... For me, that's the fascination, the perpetual fascination that Rome has is that just incredible amount of story that just continues to develop and emerge from the evidence as we find it. Yeah, I mean, and there's always that risk. I mean, the, the cautionary tale is that there is that risk and that you have this archaeological evidence and then you have this story. And then you think they're, you know, speaking one of the other thing. And so that's always, that's always a risk, you know. I'm going to find, I mean, some archaeologists have done this. I'm going to find the walls of Rollins. I'm going to find his house. I'm going to find, okay, slow down. So, but, but the point is, there is something to glean from these stories. But we have to be very cautious. And then we have to take a look at that archaeological evidence in and of itself, not just interpret it by what you read in some ancient source. But still, it can be very rewarding. Yeah, well, I think the thing that I'm really interested in, just given where we're up to in our narrative, what we're reading in our research is that whilst we're still getting the same sorts of stories about conflict with the Volscians or conflict with the Aquians and, you know, battle, 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 you know, Rome conquering everywhere, what we hear from people who've looked at the archaeological remains for the, the middle period that we're looking at, sort of the 450s and the 440s, is that this was actually potentially a real low point for Rome because there doesn't seem to be a lot of temple building happening and there does seem to be an absence of certain types of imported pottery mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But it's, it is one of those those things, one of the things that someone told me about archaeology, which I'll never forget, is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So interpretation when it comes to archaeological remains is just so such a minefield, I suppose. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just because you have that thing, it doesn't mean you've got definitive proof. You still have to explain it. And you have to, I mean, there are going to be all kinds of inconsistencies that you have to be able to address. So, yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the trick. I mean, it's, uh, and again, in the future, somebody can find other evidence that then is counter to your evidence, you know, in your interpretation. So you're always... You have to be a little nimble with this material because it, it can and inevitably will change or be refined by, you know, new material, which will then be subject to interpretation. Nah. But that's, that's, how, that's how it goes. But I do like the, that you've 
had it grounded in the topography that people can understand that these locations, they're not that far. I mean, you can drive to Anzio without traffic in less than an hour. Do you know what I mean? You can go down to, uh, you can go up to Vey in maybe, you know, 15, 20 minutes in, in a car. Um, so it's just the, in the Castelli, half an hour, you know, so they're not great distances with a car. Obviously, greater distances in ancient Roman times, but still, I mean, these interactions, these skirmishes are just your really close quarters, one population to another. Well, I think it makes sense because we often talk about the fact that when, when a new battle begins, as it does every year, hmm. uh, often what we hear is that the Romans in the city are panicking because there are people that are so close. And it, it really makes sense when you think about the fact that, well, yeah, they're, they're always kind of so close and not really ever that far away. And I think that's also interesting for us as and, and our listeners that are fellow Australians because we live in such a massive country it takes forever to get anywhere oh yeah 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 <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's good to sort of keep in mind how different the geography is when we're talking about Italy and, and the Roman area and at the same time I mean again we have modern means we have bridges we have these tunnels for the trains and you think about the Romans how they held it together they're building the roads they're building the infrastructure they're building the bridges it is absolutely fascinating how they stayed connected to these people that ultimately were, you know, tamed or beaten, but then enfranchised and then become part of that bigger idea of what Rome was. And they're the allies that see through that they, you know, go and conquer the world. I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see how they're getting their start and how they're co-opting people's energies and ideas into the, the bigger view that they had of themselves. Yeah. Oh, the Romans always leaving us with more questions and more fascination. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Darius, for thank you. being so generous with your time and sitting down to chat with us. Yeah, no, thank you. It's so great to be a part and happy to do it again. And this is a lot of fun. Well, the archaeology is only going to get more complicated. <laughs> good, good. That's good stuff. I'm, I'm better at the later stuff. But I, see, you make you make me the way you're always interjecting where you are. So you make me really want to come to Australia. That's totally on my list. Oh, you definitely should. It it is a unique and beautiful country with a really rich and vibrant history, and a very different kind of archaeology to explore. Oh, absolutely. No, I I, I look forward to it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you thank so much. Thank you.